Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions, changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibe is an investment platform focused on the biotech industry. I'm really excited today to be joined by Dr. Kristen Fortney, the CEO and co-founder of BioAge. We'll be speaking a little bit about the aging biology field, her experience building BioAge out of her postdoc, and then also some of the exciting programs they're pursuing in the spaces of muscular atrophy and obesity. Kristen, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Maybe to kick us off, would love it if you could share a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. So before starting BioAge, I have a background as, as a scientist, really focused on aging biology, but also genetics and statistics. So really approaching aging biology from more of the, the quantitative side. I did my PhD in bioinformatics at the University of Toronto, analyzing high throughput data sets related to aging in humans, but also mice and invertebrates. And then I went to do my postdoc at Stanford, where I worked on the genetics of exceptional human longevity. So asking questions about what's different in those humans who are already successfully making it to 100 or even older. Sounds awesome. I'm sure there's a lot of folks who have been in a postdoc or a graduate school and are excited about starting a company. And I'm sure there's also many who are now working in different facets of the aging biology space. Would love it if you could maybe give us a sense of the arc of the discipline, where it was perhaps when you were in school versus what's transpired over the past decade and change and what you see in the future as a place to start. Yeah, for sure. So aging biology is still very much a young science, right? So there's much more traction right now, I would say, in the clinic in biotech, even in academia, but it's still very much early days. So I think that's not necessarily appreciated outside the small field of aging biology. But just to give you a brief history, I would say that, you know, until the late, I mean, early 1990s, aging biology was still a little bit of an academic backwater. There weren't a lot of people who worked in it. And partially because people came with the intuition that the reasonable intuition (laughs) that aging is so complicated. There are so many different things that go wrong as you get older. Why would you expect there to be one switch or one lever or even a small set of them that would have a meaningful effect, right? It seems like a difficult phenotype to intervene in. And that sort of was turned on its head in the early 1990s with the work of Cynthia Kenya and Gary Rovkin and some others who showed that you could delete a single gene from the worm C. elegans and and double its lifespan. And I think that was a surprise to everybody. (laughs) So at that point in time, because of the toolkit available to invertebrate geneticists, right? It's actually pretty easy to remove one gene from a worm and measure its lifespan. So it only takes a couple of weeks. <laughs> so people came into the field, they tried knocking down every single gene in these animals and found that actually a lot of them had measurable lifespan effects and that that's really exciting, right? And it was really only in the 2000s when some of this started to be translated into mice. Mice, remember, those are already living four years. <laughs> that's a very long experiment to see if your mouse lives longer. But there's some genetic interventions as well, some drug interventions like rapamycin, for example, that really reproducibly extend most lifespan, which is really exciting. You know, when I entered the field and what I think is appealing to the next generation of scientists going into the field is the possibility here that there are targets driving multiple different diseases of aging. Because so many different diseases are a function of how old you are. Diseases with still a ton of unmet need like heart disease, Alzheimer's, even most cancers. So the promise of having one target that could have the potential to delay or even prevent these diseases is really exciting. And we've seen this unfold already in mammalian species and mice now, right? So the time is right to really start to translate these insights into the clinic. 
So it's been a huge growth in the field, really, in the past 15 years since I've been involved, starting as a graduate student and then a postdoc and now at BioAge. And we're finally seeing some of these, several of these mechanisms getting a clinical test in humans. So it's a really exciting time to be part of the science. I do want to emphasize it's still early days, though. I think there's still a lot of mechanisms to be discovered. I think there's still a lot of mechanisms that need to be translated and tried. There's still very few companies focused on aging. There's still very few labs focused on aging. And there's a lot of, of new science to be done there. One thing I've also observed is that there seems to also have been a cultural shift around the space over the past five to 10 years. For some reason, I feel like unexpectedly, people who are younger earlier in their scientific career tend to be more excited about the space of aging than perhaps those who are maybe at the tail end of their career and naturally older. Have you seen the same observation or am I off base? I would agree in the sense that many founders in this space are younger. They're not usually seasoned biotech veterans. They're people who trained in aging biology because not a lot of people have trained in aging biology, period. <laughs> have seen the potential and are now figuring out how to translate it. So I think that's a difference. Yeah. And again, like there aren't any like veterans of successful aging biotechs, right? <laughs> like that doesn't exist <laughs> because uh, it's a new field. Yeah. Makes sense. And I'd imagine also some of the indications you highlighted earlier, heart disease, Alzheimer's often discussed right in the context of aging amongst others, tend to also be the more difficult indications to pursue and perhaps the current suite of biotech companies are averse from pursuing them to some degree as well. Probably most biotechs are pursuing oncology or CBD, or these are the large therapeutic areas of pharmas as well, neuroscience, right? So I think there's certainly dollars being spent there, but there's a lot of different ways to approach target ID. And I think looking at it from an aging perspective, as opposed to a genetic mouse model, that is a different way of approaching the problem. Yeah, makes sense. Awesome. With that, would love to learn a little bit more about BioAge the approach you're taking to drug discovery and going from there? As I mentioned for my postdoc, we were looking at these human examples, people who are already living a lot longer and healthier, right? And I've always been motivated by that approach to studying aging biology because there's so many things. You might have something that doubles lifespan in a worm, but how often do you expect that to translate? <laughs> like invertebrates haven't been incredibly useful species for age-related diseases. Aging biology isn't going to translate there. And even mice, right? Like mice age very differently from people. Mice never die of heart disease. It's not like a bottleneck to their lifespan. Mice never get Alzheimer's on their own. You have to have some very constructed models <laughs> to have something that looks like Alzheimer's. So that is one aspect of it, discovery in humans, discover mechanisms that already work in humans. And the other sort of inspiration, I would say, is the utility of, like the, the tremendous utility of public resources like Decode or UK Biobank, these like large human genetics and genomics data sets that have really informed and de-risked drug discovery across a number of diseases. And so with BioAge, like our idea at the founding was like, what's the version of these human data sets that can really help us unlock novel target biology for human aging? And basically here, one of the reasons why too, that human aging is studied not that often in a lab context is that it, it takes a really long time, right? Like you age over 50 years, <laughs> really arguably longer. So our approach at BioAge was we went out and we identified some very special biobanks like Youth Biobank that had two things. One, samples collected initially as long as 50 years ago when people were middle-aged and still healthy. They had those like early pre-morbid samples before aging really started to happen. And then also follow-up data for each of those individuals for the entire rest of their lives. So we have uh, several biobank partners at BioAge and they have those two characteristics, right? So Samples collected over decades from individuals with long-term follow-up health data and the health records of information on how long these people lived, 
the diseases that got as they aged, but also critically what we think of as health span variables, because it's not just longevity that matters. You also want to be able to age. For example, one of our key biobanks, every few years, these people would go back to the biobank and they'd look at things like your cognitive function, your muscle function, your metabolic health. And then you can take these samples that have been carefully preserved for decades, blood samples, and you can interrogate them with modern technologies that didn't exist even 10 years ago. You can look at 7,000 proteins now with the Semologic platform, thousands of metabolites, and generate these giant data sets. So that's what we did. We have over 70 million molecular measurements and 10,000 people over decades of aging. And there's a bunch of really interesting questions you can ask of that kind of data set. And one of the most interesting ones for us at BioAge is what's different at a molecular level through time and those individuals who are aging much better than the rest of us, who are still incredibly cognitively intact, physically intact, well into their ninth or tenth decade. And that's the starting point for our discovery and the difference with us. That's amazing. So just to play back what I heard, it seems like there's a component of unique access to longitudinal data around the patients and their health and biospecimens. Second is a computational component to be able to analyze the vast treasure trove of data that modern technology allows you to generate. And then third, I'm assuming there's a component around identifying and interrogating specific targets that sort of emerge from said analysis. Did I kind of yep. capture three legs of the stool appropriately? That's exactly right. <laughs> you have to start with the right data set in the first place, right? So that's honestly the most important thing. It's the beginning of the funnel. And once you've got that, it's really like a data first question, right? You want to measure as many variables as you can and ask in an unbiased way, what are the different pathways that emerge is important. And as we've seen in many different animal species, there's not just one silver bullet. There's a lot of different pathways that matter. And then, yes, once you have that hypothesis, you have to validate it in cells and animals. You have to decide which indication it's most relevant for. So that's really the start of the work <laughs> rather than the end of the work. And that's the integrated organization you have today has people across data science in vitro and vivo clinical to help refine these hypotheses, decide which indications they'll be the most relevant for and pursue those hypotheses as well now. Yeah, amazing. If I may, when I think about a variety of diseases, whether aging related or not, one of the questions that often comes up is whether we have access to enough biospecimens with enough robustness of data and longitudinal samples. I'm curious if you feel like there's a bottleneck in that space or if you feel like there is enough material and info, at least at the top of the funnel, as you describe it, or if you think the bottleneck might be somewhere later, whether it's sensitivity or our analysis or our ability to test and verify. Where do you see the bottleneck currently when it comes yeah, to Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's some aging mechanisms that are common across human populations. You don't need to sequence everybody on the planet to figure out what those are. <laughs> Just to give you like a contrast, oftentimes when people are looking to identify novel targets for something like aging or for disease, they might take five healthy mice and five sick mice and compare stuff. So already, if you're looking at thousands of people even though it's not millions, that's still much more diversity, much more heterogeneity. And any signal that survives that is common across that diverse population will be a pretty robust one. So when you're looking at proteomic pathways, like things like inflammation, signals emerge in, and I would say the thousands of people, if I used to see that kind of robust signal. I think that there's other types of analyses where you would want to go broader. One example being, of course, rare variant analyses. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that kind of approach. You find some human population that has a superpower. Maybe it's just in some family and you have to sequence the world to find that needle in the haystacks. That's also a great kind of discovery, but there's a lot of mechanisms that are common too. Yeah, very interesting. It brings up an interesting question around heterogeneity. Coming from the rare disease world myself, one of the things we've seen over the past, it's called decade, has been a quote-unquote growth in the number of rare diseases, where we went from knowing that there were 7,000 rare diseases, and now there's 10,000 plus. I don't think it's explicitly that we have 
more, but rather our understanding is far more granular. And therefore we have more when you start to slice and dice it in a more maybe genomically defined way. When you look at the main mechanisms of aging, could you opine about the heterogeneity of those mechanisms? Or do you think it's going to be somewhat a handful that kind of drive the majority? What's your opinion? My opinion is that so far as aging is concerned, it's less of a personalized medicine approach, at least today. I think there's going to be some big wins that are more common. And there's examples we can point to, like statins, for example. They're not drugs for everybody, but they are drugs that when you unroll at a population scale, help prevent disease, right? To the point where now, as an example of an aging drug, <laughs> probably for the developmental path too, right? If we have an aging drug at bioage, you can't go out and get it approved for aging. And statins are a great example. They got them approved for a particular rarer disease, hypercholesterolemia, and they were used originally just to treat the disease, but today they're used by entire populations, most people past a certain age to prevent disease. And I think there's going to be a lot more mechanisms like that. A lot of, all of us get more inflammation in our bodies as we age. All of us have, lose muscle as we get older, but there are going to be common mechanisms that will help very large segments of the population. Yeah. Wow, awesome. Well, you know, I think that brings us to learning a little bit more about some of the programs you're most excited about, BioAge. I'm sure there's a myriad of different indications you love to pursue, but there's certainly been some exciting progress in a few key areas. Maybe if you can give us a quick overview of, of what's top of mind and most exciting at the moment. We'd love to highlight a couple of our programs. So our most advanced program is an apolin receptor agonist. So apolin is a peptide. It circulates in your blood. It's actually been described in the literature as a, an exerkine. This means that it's one of these factors that like right after vigorous exercise, your body makes a whole lot more of, and it's thought to potentially mediate some of the benefits of exercise. It increases mitochondrial biogenesis, it increases metabolic rate. And we discovered in our human cohorts, there was this very strong link between your midlife apolin levels. So if you were middle-aged and had higher apolin versus other people at the same age, you were more likely in our data to live longer with intact mental as well as physical function. And that's just the kind of signal we like to see to get us really excited about a target. And when we put this a molecule that basically mimics the effects of apolin into multiple different mouse aging models, and we got very robust effects on muscle protection across a variety of models. So based on that, we went into the clinic with this molecule for the first time last year and showed that it could protect older people from muscle atrophy in a bed rest type of study. So we're really excited about this molecule for all sorts of like muscle atrophy indications. As I mentioned, muscle loss happens to all of us. <laughs> but we recently announced plans actually that the phase two, the first indication we're going to go after here is actually obesity. So I'm sure you're aware and your listeners too that it's very effective obesity drugs today, Manjaro and Wagavi, uh, injectable drugs. It's interesting too, this is a bit of an aside, but from an aging perspective, because these are drugs too, where we're seeing that they can actually prevent some diseases. <laughs> so it's very, very kind of allied in that way. It's a preventative medicine kind of mechanism. But anyway, to get back on track, we discovered that when we combined our drug, our apolin receptor agonist, together with one of these incretin drugs, these weight loss drugs, they could both amplify the weight loss and also restore body composition in animals back to what like, a healthy body composition is. And so we're really excited about that, especially because our drug is oral and safe so far. It's a pill you take once a day instead of an injectable. And right now, the oral medicines for weight loss are not as effective in terms of their weight loss profile. So boosting that effectiveness, amplifying it with a drug like ours, while improving the quality of the weight loss is a really exciting. We're going to go into a big phase two next year with the help of Lilly. We're thrilled to collaborate with them. They're one of the big players in the space. And they're going to help us run the trial. That's awesome. And when you partnered with them, it sounds like you had some initial 
was it phase one B data or did you have just yeah, that was the bad rest. Yeah, that was the bad rest study. I would, so this it's a different study. It's not on obese people. It was on older people that would come into a phase one unit and sit in bed for 10 days. And this is a common design in the muscle space. Basically, if you have this sort of immobility-induced atrophy in this older population, when older people come and they're still <laughs> for 10 days, they don't move their legs at all, you get a reduction in the size of the thigh muscle, a reduction in the quality of the thigh muscle with more infiltrating fat, as well as suppression of protein synthesis. This is the proteins you need to continue to maintain the muscle. And we're able to show a rescue of that on the drug. Yeah, that's amazing. certainly sounds like the combo approach, especially given the popularity and the need, right, around conventional obesity drugs could be really powerful. And was this molecule one that you all developed internally or brought in-house? Curious to hear the origin, perhaps, of that specific chemical entity. This was a drug that we actually licensed from Amgen. So we found the target in our data. We got really excited about it. And we saw that Amgen had already built a small molecule, the epilim receptor agonist, that at the time was active in phase one studies. And we got lucky with the timing because they just decided to discontinue it. So Amgen was originally pursuing the mechanism for heart failure. They brought it to about 200 people altogether, mostly healthy volunteers and a small cohort of patients with heart failure. As I mentioned, it was very well tolerated in the patients. And in the heart failure cohort, they saw a small improvement on the biomarkers they looked at, but not much of one. And so they decided to discontinue it for strategic reasons. And we wanted to bring it in for this whole sort of different set of indications. Yeah, sounds like you're able to get something for nothing there, right? If you're an HR or hiring manager in biotech, you know all too well that the pool of experts seeking full-time employment is shrinking. Filling key full-time positions can be a long, drawn-out ordeal that can slow the pace of execution and growth. Throw away the old hiring playbook. Now you can build a biotech dream team in a fraction of that time. Find out how. Visit Clora.com. Clora. Talent optimized. Motivate's a really interesting school of thought, especially with all the hype around AI and machine learning and drug development. You do see a fair bit of it geared towards the earliest step, right? The generation, the design of the small molecule, the antibody, et cetera. But it seems like there are maybe other paths that one should consider when it comes to the development process. Would you agree with that or? Oh, definitely. Uh, like the sweet spot that we're at is really what target do you go after <laughs> and for what indication? And we still don't know. In most cases, it's not a matter of we know the perfect target. We don't have the perfect molecule. I think in a lot of cases, we don't even know what to pursue. Yeah, I got it. I know there's a fair number of companies looking at the dark genome and other types of targets. So very much perhaps once the design and the synthesis of the compounds becomes routine, then the work sort of really goes to the way the book ends, right? Target ID and then clinical trial, the endpoints. When you think about either translatability of models and endpoints, curious if you can help guide the audience to your mental model or framework and thinking about that, given that so many medicines fail, especially in that sort of early clinical POC stage? Yeah, great question. That's reason, one reason we like muscle, actually. And in particular, at BioAge 2, we do all our experiments in naturally aged animals. And we like to focus on those things that go wrong in old mice in a similar way to the way they go wrong in old people, right? Like I mentioned earlier, old mice don't get heart disease. So it's not a great model for that. <laughs> but old mice do, like old people, experience accelerated muscle atrophy just loss of muscle mass. They don't run as well in their wheels, right? So we like that aspect of it. 
And interestingly, obesity too, as well, has that reputation where there's like a nature of newspaper just a few months ago, and they can, you can almost draw a line <laughs> between the, the weight loss that you see in the diet-induced obesity mouse model and the weight loss in the clinic, which is a rare thing. It's frustrating in a way, right? Because we also are very interested in brain aging at BioAge, which is, and there the models are terrible. <laughs> there we have all the submit need and the models are terrible. But so far, we focus some of our programs on areas where specifically they have nice models. Yeah. Just to add one last thought, Please. here the models yeah. are terrible. That's exactly where we think human data is especially valuable. So, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a really interesting topic for me personally, especially coming from the rare disease drug development world. You don't even necessarily have the luxury of a model. And sure. oftentimes yeah. that ends up becoming a gate for you to even be able to get a treatment into the clinic in the first place, just out of the gate. This concept and the occasional over-reliance on irrelevant models, I feel like is a really big sore spot in drug development. What If you were to sort of paint an ideal picture for what the next 10 years of drug development should look like when it comes to thinking about preclinical models and evaluation, what do you think the right answer is? Or what do you think we should be trying to direct towards or how should we be modifying our process to account for this? Uh, That's a great question, because you're right. Oftentimes the models are terrible, right? And even if it works in that model, that doesn't mean anything. It might filter out the effective therapies while letting through Alzheimer's is a great example. So many different things have cured mouse Alzheimer's and not translated to the clinic. At the same time, it's a resourcing question. So if you're biotech like us and you try several of your targets and models knowing they're imperfect, <laughs> some of them hit check both boxes of like great human data and great model performance. And of course, you want to allocate more resource there. That's a bit of an incentive problem, a bit of a resourcing problem. I'm not really sure what the best way around is there, especially for the brain. Yeah. I do think that, you know, as you mentioned, right, AI and patient selection and omics can help on the front end with the molecule selection, with the target selection, but also in the clinic. They do think we'll get to the, have more efficient clinical bets because for some of these mechanisms, like just choosing the right small sets of patients <laughs> and having multiple shots on goal with different mechanisms, I think is sometimes you're right. Like you can't really get much out of the animal model. You just like to go right to the patient. And I think we're going to get better at being you know, more specific in our tests there and hopefully more cost-effective now. Yeah. One of the pathways that I've thought a lot about has been like the N of 1 pathway, for example, oh. in part because I think it gives you an opportunity to help a patient who is in dire need, but also see if it actually works in reality, right? There's obviously pros and cons of doing it in just one patient, only one patient, but at the same time, it seems like it's almost a win in both cases, especially when you lack the preclinical infrastructure and legacy to support. What's your take? I think that's really interesting, right? Especially if you have a mechanism that has like a clear PD marker that manifests itself quickly, because then you could actually have each person be their own control. You can try different doses in the same person, right? You can have periods on and off the drug. That is, I think, a very efficient design. I think we're seeing more and more innovation at that end of it. Of course, for some mechanisms where it takes longer for an effect to be established, then it's a bit harder to have requisite power there. Yeah, for sure. Given that you've now got this really powerful partnership with Eli Lilly, and I'm sure a lot of folks who are earlier on in their biotech journey, quite keen to hear how they should approach their first big partnership with a bigger pharma company. Curious if there's any advice or mental models you can share to help guide folks as they think about that first big one, that first big point of validation from a pharma partnership standpoint. For sure. Yeah, this is a really important collaboration for us. And with all of these relationships, like they've been going on for, in some ways for years. So I still remember right after I hired a chief business officer for the first time, our, our CBO Kang, who's great. And I went with him to my first bio conference, right? This is the big partnering conference in the field. 
And we just had this deck was explained our platform. It was like half an hour. And you can just reach out. And we met with reasonably senior representatives from pretty much every company. Like they're looking, they're looking for innovation. They want to have conversations with you. <laughs> and nothing's going to come out of those first few meetings. Like it's a slow moving process. <laughs> but you want these people to be aware of your science, to be aware of like how it evolves. And then the interest grows over time and the relationship grows over time. Yeah. Got it. So it sounds like you got to be doing it for the long haul. It's a long-term relationship. It reminds me a little bit of this one adage that's in at least tech venture capital, which is people invest in lines, not dots. They want to see the progress of the organization and the platform over time. Does that resonate? That's a great phrase because especially if you're just starting out, they don't have a lot of data points yet. They don't know you personally, right? But they might get interested in the mechanism and then you come back a few months later with clinical data, right? So exactly. Yeah, very cool. As you reflect on your experience building a bioage to date, what are maybe the top three lessons you think you'd distill that you think might help the next wave of entrepreneurs and the aging field? That's always a hard question. So I'm sure there's a lot of like end of one, as in a lot of different experiences, top three lessons. Partly it's just telling your story to everybody. As I mentioned, we started really interacting in earnest with these great scientific teams, you know, at Pharma right after I had a CEO and learned how to engage there. But they're out there and they're willing to talk to you. And similarly, in terms of like expertise, like we have really wonderful people at the company with deep drug discovery backgrounds. And I guess starting out, you hadn't realized how accessible that talent was. But, you know, there's a lot of startups right now that are doing really innovative science. There's a lot of really talented people from biotech, from pharma who are going to be interested, right? And who are going to be in massive help. But the cold reach out is invaluable, which was always for me as an academic. That was a that was a new transition. Yeah. Yeah. Shooting the shot for sure yeah. <laughs> is definitely important. Awesome. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing a little bit about both your background as well as some of the exciting things that are ongoing at BioAge. Definitely refreshing to hear your mental model for both drug development along with the opportunities that arise here in the aging space. We'd love to have you on again soon as more of this interesting data reads out and the company progresses. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.